Hello everyone, please do keep your Bibles open. Uh, my name is Matt, if I haven't met you, and we've come to that wonderful time of year again. Christmas is fast approaching. Now, I'm not sure about you guys, but when I was a kid, say, nine or ten years old, that's when it felt like Christmas took the longest time to roll around each year, right? And my grandparents had a, peach, a beach house up at the top of Palm Beach. And it would be some years that we get to spend our Christmases up there. And it was only during these Christmases, when I was 10 or so, these long-awaited Christmases, that did we as a family wait till 9 p.m. at night until it was completely dark and then head out as a family. Now, I don't know about you, but when you're 10 and your parents aren't telling you to get to bed, it's 9 p.m., but instead they're telling you, get in the car, it's time to go out. It is a very fun and very giddy time, to say the least. And I spent those Christmases sitting in a car, staring out the window at night. This dark and gloomy night skies. And I'd stare at that all the way until we got to Elaine Avenue in Avalon. Then there was light. More specifically, a whole street committed to putting up amazing Christmas lights. So while on every other street, there was not a soul stirring, there was a hustle and a bustle going on that made it feel like peak hour on this street. Families were out in force, kids there, all to soak up as many Christmas lights as they could. And as you walked down that street and you looked at each and every single house, each one made you smile that little bit more. For some reason, lights during such a dark summer night brought so many families so much joy. Elaine Avenue was so completely different to every other street at Christmas time. Dark and gloomy versus light and joy and teeming with life. Now, in our passage today, we're looking at the next promise that God makes in Isaiah some 800-odd years before Jesus. And today, we will see a massive contrast. Darkness to light. A promise to turn despair and darkness into honor and joy and life. And we're going to look at this promise in two points. Very quickly, darkness to a great light. That's the first five verses. That's what we'll see in the first five verses. And then the second, how is God actually going to do this? Last two verses, verse 6 and 7. So, let's look at God's wonderful promise of turning darkness to light. Do have your Bibles open and look down with me at verse 1. Verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled, that is, he brought low the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. This first verse here gives us a bit of context to the darkness that is on view. Now, here's a map, and you can see that Zebulun and Naphtali are right up the top around the Sea of Galilee. In Jesus' time, the area is just called Galilee. But back in Isaiah, when there are 12 tribes, this land is Zebulun and Naphtali. 
And the Assyrians, who are coming with an army to absolutely destroy the northern tribes of Israel, they would come and take this Galilee land first because they're coming from the north. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali then would have taken the full brunt of the superpower, which was the Assyrian Empire. They are humbled in rubble. This is their distress. This land would have been completely dark, laid waste by the Assyrians. And this is the judgment that God himself is bringing upon the evil of those who are in the northern tribes of Israel. This darkness is, in fact, their punishment. Yet, there will be honor after this darkness and judgment has passed. Look at the second half of verse 1 again. But in the future, he will honor three places. Galilee of the nations, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. Now, I do want you to see those capital letters in your Bibles in those verses, because those are showing us that those are names of places. Galilee of the nations is kind of like the central coast. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. By the way of the sea, that's west. The land between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It's like us saying the Blue Mountains. And the last one, beyond the Jordan, that's east. Like Belrose to Narambeen. So Zebulun and Naphtali, these two small tribes, would feel the fullness of Assyria. But that will be the same place where honor first comes. Where the light will first be. Not just these two tribes, but all around this area will benefit from the honor that God will bestow on these people. So let's look at verse 2, because this begins to paint the picture of what this promised honor is going to look like. And I want you to notice how Isaiah prophesies all of this in past tense. It is certain, so much so that it's talked about like it's already happened. So verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned a great light has dawned a complete and comprehensive change and we start to see a picture of distress and darkness but then we move to this great big dawning of light like the sun coming up at the end of what feels like the longest night. This is going to be something momentous. This light and honor will replace the darkness and distress of these days. So much so like the day replacing the night. And so we kind of understand what the darkness is. But in the next few verses, we're going to see and see what this great light is. So look with me down at verse 3. Verse 3, speaking of God, you, God, have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as the people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing plunder. The great light dawning is going to be filled, filled with joy. Joy and rejoicing. God has enlarged the nation. 
Now, if we were to think about the dark times of Israel, that's like a starving baby. Think of skinny, think of bones. But in the light, the time of honor, when God enlarges the nations, that's when you feed, take care of it, nurse it, and you're left with a big, chubby, happy baby. Israel is going to go from a tiny, scrawny remnant to a big, joyous nation. God has enlarged the nation. And the party, the celebrations, the rejoicing are going to be like two very distinct times. The time of harvest and the time of plunder. Now, harvest time is when the growing is done. The time of laboring with no fruit, that's ended. The abundance of food is here. It's time for great big feasts. It's time for generosity. It's time for happiness. No long days out in the field. Instead, long days rejoicing and celebrating with one another. Festivals can start. And the time of plunder is when the war is done. When there's no more dying or violence or threat. Peace and plunder. Treasure. The spoils of victory. When you're welcomed home by loved ones. Safe from all enemies. It's another time of great celebration. And did you notice there in verse 3 that it says, they rejoice before you as the harvest and plunder times. This celebration is not just Israel by themselves having a great time, but God's people rejoicing in the presence of God. This wonderful joy is experienced, is had before the Lord. But there's more. Look at verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Now, the day of Midian's defeat is a specific reference back to Judges 7. I'll just quickly summarize the story because it is a wonderful story of Judges 7. We have Gideon versus the Midians. Gideon, faithful Gideon versus the Midians. Now, faithful Gideon from the weakest clan in Israel is actually given the command of the Israelite army. 32,000 men. That's important. And the Midians, they were too many to number. They're talked about like a swarm of locusts. And what does God say to Gideon? You have too many men. So 22,000 went home. He's left with 10,000 men. And then God says, you still have too many men. So 9,700 went home. Gideon is there with 300 men against an army without number. But then God said, you don't need weapons. So now 300 unarmed men are with Gideon with just torches and trumpets against an army without number. The next thing that happens is that God wipes out the Midianites. God gets the victory. And the 300, they rejoice. They have a plunder like no other, free from that amazing threat. So verse 4 again, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, this miraculous victory, you have shattered the yoke that burns. You have shattered the bar across their shoulders. You have shattered the rod of their oppressors. A miraculous victory. 
a freedom from a seemingly unbeatable enemy. This is what the great light dawning is bringing. And this victory, this freedom, it's not temporary. It's not just for that one generation. This is going to be so momentous that there will never be war again. Look down at verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be destined for burning. Will just be fuel for the fire. Never again will you get dressed for battle. Never again will you pick up a weapon to go to war. Never again will you not know peace. A great, great light. Bringing joy, bringing peace, bringing freedom and a victory that has no end. This is the picture God himself is painting for his people. And how beautiful that picture. This is the promise of God. But the logical question to ask here is, how is he going to do this? How is he going to fulfill this promise? How is he going to be able to bring peace like another victory, like the Midianite one? How is he going to bring joy that's greater than an unimaginable plunder and harvest? How is he going to bring a victory and a freedom that lasts forever? All this because one child is born. This huge contrast between darkness and despair and a great light that God promises, that change only happens because one child is born. We're up to our second point. How is God actually going to do this? We'll look at the first bit of verse 6. Verse 6. Four. What a good four. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now this son that is born is the one who is going to rule. The government on his shoulders, that's what that is speaking about, a child ruler. And what we're going to do is we're going to come back to the names because verse 7 continues to talk about this child's rule, his kingdom. What will this child's dominion be like? Look at verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there's going to be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So one king will change darkness to light. And this king, his rule, will be forever. There will be no end to his greatness. There will be no end to the peace he brings. There will be no end to his justice. And there will be no end to his righteousness. A child born to rule forever. That is what will fulfill this promise of darkness to light. When we think of the world's biggest problems, the way that we try and fix them is we change the government change the policies, change the leaders, yet all of the biggest changes around our governments would all fall so far short of anything like this kingdom. This kingdom with this king. So much so that God's zeal, his 
eagerness to see justice, God's eagerness to see righteousness, that is what's going to establish and uphold this kingdom. It will be like nothing else. So now, let's go back to the names. The second half of verse 6. Because this king, he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Now, as we come to these names, we all know who we're talking about here. Jesus. And that is completely correct. But I do want us to slow down for a moment. Because back in the Old Testament times, names were given to tell people what they're going to experience. Kind of like signs or reminders. So Isaiah, the guy writing this, means God saves. Now Isaiah himself is not the God who saves, but the people will experience a salvation after this judgment. And if you remember from last week, everyone should remember this, Sheer Jeshab, obviously, uh, his, that's Isaiah's son, and his name means a remnant will remain. That's what the people will experience. Now, Sheer Jeshab is not the remnant that is remaining, but that's what the people are going to experience. That's why he's named that. Another example is Jeremiah, another time when the people were completely laid low. Jeremiah means God will exalt. So when we're hearing these names, they point to what God's people will experience under this king. What we're trying to think through with these titles with Jesus is they aren't just conceptual. These are titles for Jesus that will be experienced by his people. Jesus himself, or Jesus the name, sorry, means God saves. God's people are the ones who experience God's saving work. So let's think of the first name, Wonderful Counselor. Now, a Wonderful Counselor has all wisdom and knowledge, right? So when this child is born, when this king arrives, God's people will know things about God. Wonderful things. His knowledge and his wisdom is there to teach them. So this king is going to come and teach deep truths from God. This king is going to come and teach us how to live, to teach us to repent and to come back to God. He'll be able to say, this is God's salvation plan. This is how little old you can be adopted into God's family. This is how eternal life works. This is how your sins can be forgiven. Peace with God that will never end. Jesus, this king, his wisdom dwarfs that of Solomon's. He is the place where all wisdom and knowledge reside. So if we think of God giving us this king, who provides wonderful knowledge and truth, let me ask you, do you seek out this king for wisdom? When the world is preaching at you in your workplaces or on the news, success is the greatest thing in your life. Do we fall for that? Jesus, the greatest king who brought this great light, he said, the greatest thing in your life, to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do we find ourselves hustling and hustling for success at work rather than loving those around us? Or what about when the world preaches to your children or to your grandchildren in their schools? Your value, that's in your marks. That's in your grades. Your whole life will solely depend on your abilities, 
What do you reckon your children fall for that? Because Jesus, the great king, he said our whole life depends on our faith and trust in the Lord. So are our children better at studying maths than they are of the God who saved them? Are they more aware of social trends than they are of what Jesus said and taught? Do they think sport is more important than the God who saved his people? Where do we go for counsel? Because we have this wonderful counselor to learn from. He will be called Mighty God. How do God's people experience God's might when Jesus arrives? Because he doesn't come with an army to overthrow. He doesn't change any social norms. Rather, the might of God is seen as Jesus preaches. In our New Testament reading from Matthew 4, it says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The might of God is seen in him redeeming his people. How does God show this great might? redeeming them from death, redeeming them from judgment, that is done by Christ first preaching repent and then making sure our repentance leads to life by dying and rising. We experience the mighty God as Jesus arrives preaching repent. He will also be called everlasting father. And again, this is what the people are going to experience. A father's duty is to provide and to protect the source and the head of the family. Jesus is the eternal provider, the protector, the head of this family. Do you realize that under Christ, we are eternally cared for? Christ has given us all that we need for eternal life with the Holy God. And Christ's care isn't something that will run away or fade. His care for his people is as strong and as mighty as it was the day he hung there on that cross. We can know and we can run to this everlasting father. And lastly, he will be called prince of peace, a ruler who brings peace. Now, when you compare war times to peace, peace is safe, security, happiness, There's no threat, there's no death, there's no bloodshed. And peace is celebrated and enjoyed. Whilst on the other hand, war, that's just mourned over. Jesus is the ruler who will bring wonderful peace. And peace that people will experience. So did you know that you have peace with God? I wonder if we understand how marvelous this truth is, that our sin rightly deserves to be on our shoulders and our sin threatens to send us to hell for all eternity. Our judgment we would mourn over. Yet, because of this king shedding his blood for us, our eternal darkness and distress can be completely replaced with light 
and peace. Like going from night to day. Peace with God. His justice no longer threatens you because your sin is completely washed away. Because of Jesus, we can have peace with God. In times of uncertainty and fear, this is the Prince of Peace that we run to. So, how ought we to respond to this wonderful news? Two things, very quickly. Let us be truly thankful as we remember Christ first appearing this Christmas. He came that we would experience all of this. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And let us truly look forward forward to the day that Christ appears again and we get experience this light in full. How wonderful it will be when we come face to face with this King who we celebrate this Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our great and grand King that you gave us that first Christmas. Thank you for his power to change darkness and despair to light and life. Thank you so much for his counsel, for his might, for his protection, his provision, and the peace that he brings. Father, please grant us joyful hearts as we celebrate our King. And please give us longing hearts to see him as he is. In Jesus' holy and awesome name we pray. Amen.